QD Sankers 90.7 FM. And this is the Hive Poetry Collective. And I'm here today with Erin Redfern. Hi, Erin. Hi, thank you for having me. It's so great to have you here at the Hive. Erin is a poet, as you might have imagined. And we're going to be listening to some of her poems today and talking to her about her poetry life. A little bit about Erin. Erin Redfern is the author of Spellbreaking and Other Life Skills. She is the 2016 co-recipient of the Poetry Society of America's Robert H. Winner Award. Her work appears or, in, or is forthcoming in Fire and Rain, Eco Poetry of California, The New Ohio Review, and New Voices, Contemporary Writers Confronting the Holocaust. She earned her PhD at Northwestern University, where she was also a fellow at the Searle Center for Teaching Excellence. She has served as poetry judge for the San Francisco Unified School District Arts Festival and as a reader for DMQ Review and Poetry Center San Jose Seishura. Did I say Seishura right? Yes. Okay, good. <laughs> okay, Erin, um, first off, why, could you tell me what your book Spellbreaking and Other Life Skills was about? Yeah, that's a chat book, and it's interesting because it's put out by Blue Lyra Press, and um, in that series, they put out chat books three at a time, so if you go looking for it by itself, it doesn't really exist, so it's in there with two other chat books, and it's, um, I only started writing, um, like with great intention, I'd say around 2015. And so it's maybe like my first year's worth of poems. And um, there's no theme, like it's not all about the color orange or anything like that. Um, But I find a lot of my poems end up being about um, childhood, about relationship. Um, I think I just came into the world and like felt, what is this alien place I'm in? And so a lot of my poems are just trying to figure out what's going on and who people are and how do we relate and what are we doing here? And so those early poems um, do that, maybe not as well as the ones I'm doing now, but... The first tentative steps. The first tentative steps, yeah. Oh, I thought it might be a self-help book. Oh. Soul-breaking and other (laughs) Oh, you know, I was coming out of a a pretty dark place when I started writing um, seriously, and... um, it felt like it felt like spell breaking in the early poems to name what had happened and and oh. right and, and kind of like um that fairy tale rumple steel skin when mm-hmm. she says his name it breaks the spell mm-hmm. yet naming things honesty coming mm-hmm. out and saying the truth does really break a spell i guess they say you're only as sick as your secrets that's right and we poets are namers Right. I I think it was Denusha Lamaris was saying to me that someone else said, <laughs> it was Shaughnessy's <laughs> husband, said that poets are all people who have been silenced at some point. That sounds like it could be true, but I think maybe is it true of almost anybody? Uh, yeah, everyone's been silenced to some degree. Yeah, well, it sounds good. Yeah, maybe poets are most actively rebelling against that or something. Yeah. So this Fire and Rain Eco Poetry of California, is yeah. that uh, one that's coming out soon? Or oh, that's one? out. It's that out? Yeah. Okay. It is is out. that the Molly Fisk? No. That's another one. No, this is from Scarlett um, Tanager Books. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so that one's out. When did that one come out? That was early 2019. Okay. Yeah. And that is put out by, um, it was kind of conceived and um, released by Lucille Lang Day. Mm -hmm. And um, it's really generous effort. She's just been on a huge book tour going up and down, and the profits from that book are being donated to environmental organizations. Mm -hmm. So she just kind of, just this past month, got her, you know, first, 
big taking stock and was able to split up the profits and divide them among a bunch of different organizations. Wow. Yeah, it was a a real effort of love. Poets making a difference. Yeah. Wonderful. So um, why don't you tell me a little bit about well, actually, why don't we jump right into a poem? Let's jump <laughs> okay. right into a poem. Let's okay. jump into this first one. Okay. Uh, am I pronouncing this right? Nostoy? Yeah, because you used to teach the Odyssey, right? Is this in the Odyssey? In the Nostoy are the return journeys of the soldiers after the Trojan War. Oh, nostoi, that's called the yeah. Nostoy? Um, that's one of the words for them. It has to do with their, well, you can hear it in our English word nostalgia and that longing for home. Yeah, some, I heard mm-hmm. somewhere that um, the Odyssey is really excellent for men with PTSD from the war to read because it really is a journey of returning. I believe it. Yeah. I believe really- it. And it's interesting because in the Iliad, the war book, the, the big gorgeous similes are all very domestic and peaceful. And in the homecoming book, the Odyssey, the similes are very violent and warlike. So it does have this like PTSD echo of the mm. violence of the war kind of following Odysseus home. Huh. Huh. Yeah, yeah. as he works through his yeah. uh, defects of character, <laughs> like pride. Yeah. Okay, so go ahead. Okay. No stoy. Drive like your kids live here. Drive like Angelina Jolie's kids live here. Drive like you could afford to live here with your kids. Drive like you have kids. Drive like Miss Palmer, the kindergarten teacher who let you play inside when the other kids were too loud, lives here. Drive like your heart surgeon lives here. Drive like the Dalai Lama lives here in his marigold robes and floppy gardening hat, bowing to flowers. Drive like your lost cat lives here. Drive like the last baby white rhino lives here. Drive like all the dead languages live here. Drive like Gerard Manley Hopkins and Prince live here, sharing a duplex and a karaoke machine. Drive like your worst mistakes don't know the way here. Drive like you want to be going where you're going. Drive like you learned what you needed to know in time. Drive like there's time. Drive like my kids live here because I need your help to keep them safe, because I cannot keep them safe. Not them, not the vanishing glaciers, not the dying oaks, not even the small owls burrowing in the empty corner lot. Drive like that lot's earth can still hold rain, still has roots and nematodes and something to give. Drive like you have something to give. Drive like whether or not you have kids, you have something to give and you give it. And it's evening and cool and the street is wide and the kids playing in it see you and yell, car, and scatter and wait for you to pass. And as you do, all the sprinklers come on and are lit by low sun. And the kids are now whooping through shadow and dazzle and Jerry's laying rhymes into a gold colt nine mic and the unpronounceable one strutting and riffing in his suit of clouds and the Dalai Lama's smiling at droplets jeweling the petals. And even Angie's propping her tired feet up on the peeling porch rail, waving to Miss P and watching her kids who are safe who are twirling and leaping through fountains of light, and we're all of us going to be all right now. All right. That was Erin Redfern reading Nostoy here on the Hive Poetry Collective. I'm Deanna Riley, and we're talking with Erin about poetry today here on KSQD Santa Cruz. Um, Well, we, both of us, recently took a Patricia Smith workshop And she talked about how you can use something like a recipe or an address as a segue into a larger idea. Mm -hmm. And it looks like you used a traffic sign. I used a traffic sign. Yeah. Yeah. um, It's amazing how many of my poems actually start in these little moments, petty moments of irritation. And I really don't like those signs. And at first it'll be kind of a ranty draft, you know, and then, but I'm doing it because I want to open it up and figure out why am I having, why am I irritated? Mm. Right. Why am I angry? Why does the sign bother me? So So. your poems grow out of little irritations. A lot of them do. Not all of them, but yeah. Like making a pearl out of a piece of grit in a clamshell or anything. Yeah. I think I, I really, um, 
I don't, it's not that I want to go through the world being angry, but I appreciate anger as a, as a, um, a live emotional energy. And so it gives me a lot of energy to push through a poem, which is challenging mm-hmm. for me. I'm not the kind of person who can sit down and just reel off poems. You know, I remember way back when I was in teacher school at Western Washington University, like 1979, and I had this teacher, Dr. Watrous, <laughs> and um, people said, how do you get how do you get high school kids to write? She said, you get them riled up. Yeah. Get them riled up. That sign gets me riled up. Yeah. yeah. Maybe not anymore. Not, not that, not after I've written the poem, mm-hmm. but, but before that I'd see it and I'd be like driving around like, rrr, 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 and I just assume people have kids and rrr, rrr, assume you could live in a place like this. And, you know, yeah. and now I can, now I've <laughs> been able to let that go and maybe grow as a person. <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's great because we've all seen those signs and so we're like, oh yeah, drive like your kids live here and we're pretty relaxed. And then we move into environmental collapse. Like you just sort of ease your way into that. I mm. noticed that the drive like Miss Palmer, the kindergarten teacher, and your heart surgeon, the Dalai Lama, that that stands as all kind of about heart and love. Yeah. And warmth. Like that's a nice memory that Miss Palmer. Yeah, I was trying to figure out what would make me drive like they want me to drive. Mm. Right. So who are the people I don't want to hit? Who are the things, the precious things I want to be especially careful of? Yeah. And then you go into loss, your lost cat, the last baby rhino, the dead languages, Gerard, Manley, Hopkins and Prince, both dead, although Prince might not have been dead when you wrote that. He was already. He was already. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So then you go into loss. Um, Then you move it to the personal drive like your worst mistakes. Don't know the way here. And it's, it's um, personal kind of failings or regrets. Yeah, you're making it sound poetically really structured, but it's really my brain working through, okay, now what makes me drive like a big jerk? You know, I'm either late or I'm anxious about something or I'm reacting to something that happened earlier in the day, right? I'm, I'm in some kind of selfish mode and not paying attention to the world around me. And I thought, well, what would it take to soothe that? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, even at the end, then you go into the end, this long riff on this beautiful scene that harkens back to many of our childhoods, playing with friends in the street yeah. and the the droplets jeweling the petals and the people on sitting on the porches, waving to Miss P, which is Miss Palmer, I assume. Yeah. Yeah, waving yeah. to your old kindergarten teacher or the speaker's kindergarten teacher twirling and leaping through fountains of light and we're all of us going to be all right now all right but it kind of doesn't feel like everything's going to be all right with that no. repetition yeah i have a real ambivalence i have an ambivalence toward the feeling of nostalgia and here it's a nostalgia for i didn't have a neighborhood quite that idyllic right like mm-hmm. um and so i think it's dangerous when we are longing for an imagined time in the past that's better than the time we have now. And I actually am pretty skeptical of that. And so mm-hmm. the poem also begins to interrogate my own um, just, uh, fantasy. Yeah, that's funny. Now I'm thinking of that Patricia Smith workshop again, too, because she was a black woman growing up in Chicago and she just watched all those leave it to beaver shows Mm -hmm. and she had all this cognitive dissonance as her people were being murdered in her neighborhood and the neighborhood burned down and yet that was what she aspired to right but the sign drive like your kids live here (laughs) kind of aspires to something too it aspires Mm -hmm. the idea that we all have kids and we all live a certain reality right and if I can just uh, like reach that that kind part of you that I assume is like the kind part of me, like that it comes from the same place and the same experiences. Then you'll understand, and you'll, you know, you won't run over my child. They but, should have put a trigger warning on that sign. <laughs> maybe I don't yeah. know. Yeah, they need to think. A little, who can we complain to? Well, I just <laughs> I just love this poem. Where did you? And you got this one published, right? That was published in. I want to say Otis Nebula, Mm -hmm. which is a really fun magazine. And I think people should send stuff in Um, when you're when you get a poem taken, then in that issue, 
Sometimes you get the chance to play this Otis Nebula game where you're kind of passing around lines and writing poems with the other contributors. Oh. So it's like no other magazine that I've I've had work placed in. Okay, so Otis Nebulae. I'll have to remember that one um, next time I have a poem and I want to play a game with it. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit, Erin Redfern, about your practice? How do you approach your poetry? What is your ritual if you have one? Do you have one? I was wondering if you're going to ask this because oh. I've just been listening to your interview with Amanda Moore who has the most admirable daily practice. And I thought, oh, because I don't, I, I wish I could tell you I had something I do regularly. Um, but I have, I have this thing I call, it's inside me. It's called the drill sergeant. Mm-hmm. And it likes to say, all right, you're going to get off your butt and you're going to write for this, you know, at this time of the morning for this long and, and it, and it, it, it wants me to be productive. And it's, um, it kills my creativity. And so I'm trying, I work all the time to find a balance between having some kind of regular practice that, that um, is healthy for my work, but not getting so scheduled. I mean, I love lists. I love calendars. I like crossing things off. And that part of me is what, uh, how I survived um, my childhood all the way through grad school. And now that I'm trying to live a kind of gentler, with a gentle approach, it doesn't work for me any, anymore to say, I'm going to get up and write it from six to seven every day. I just, um, I'll get up and I'll sit there and, and the creative part of me says, nope, I'm mm. not playing. And so um, I do try to schedule like a week ahead in the calendar. I'll write in, I'll pencil in a couple of writing times and try to make sure I hit those. But what you said was, is you yeah. have developed an awareness of when you have an idea and it is from what irritates you. Oh, sometimes. I mean, the other day I had, um, or a couple months ago, I should say, I had for the first time ever, I heard a news story on the radio while I was driving and got a poem from that. I'm always envious of people who can pull poems out of news headlines. So I finally got one that way. Um, and I do what most people do. I sit down and just start journaling, you know, bad, 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 bad stuff. And, you know, just trying to stay, it's like trying to keep the window open long enough for something to slip through. When you say bad stuff, you mean just craft-wise bad? Yeah, just drivel, just drivel of, you yeah. know? Yeah. So actually, my, I probably shouldn't say this because I might not go write it then, but I, was, I, I really love forms, too. Mm-hmm. I often start with a form, and I'm thinking, I need to write a sonnet about all the bad poems that try to like crash my poetry party, like show up on the front step, right. With their 40 and their ripped jeans, like wanting in and I don't want to let them in, right? but, but you've got to let the bad poems in too, right. If you're going to have your poem party. Huh. That's a really funny idea. Yeah. It's sort of like you have to kiss a lot of frogs yeah. before <laughs> you get the prints. Yeah, I know you do write a lot of forms. Um, I remember I took a workshop with you about sonnets. Oh, yeah, yeah. I love sonnets. Mm-hmm. I like forms because because of that really um, critical driving part of me inside. The form um, completely distracts that part. It's like, oh, there's a puzzle. I can go work this mm-hmm. out. And it's busy off doing that. And I guess it would be my right brain then, right, gets to start writing the poem kind of unmolested for a while. Yeah, you know, like it really is almost like you have to treat your creative mind like a little child. Like don't tell it no, distract it. Right. Here, yeah. play with this. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, really interesting. Yeah. Okay, well, um if you just tuned in, we are the Hive Poetry Collective here at KSQD Santa Cruz 90.7 FM. You can find all our shows at iTunes or Spotify or anywhere where you get your podcasts. And we air almost every Sunday at 8 p.m. on KSQD. Uh, Once a month, we have Dennis Morton and the Poetry Show. Um, But The Hive has three days a month. So you can find us there frequently. We also have a blog. It's called hivepoetry.org. And you can find us on Facebook at the Hive Poetry at KSQD and also on Twitter at the Hive Poetry Collective. 
And I'm Deanna Riley here with Erin Redfern, and we're going to read another poem. Our next poem in the pile is Photograph of a Drugged Giraffe. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Okay. Photograph of a Drugged Giraffe. The strong stalk of its neck has gone slack on the pack sand, revealing a long face, dun-colored cheek, and dark, puckered underside of lip. The lifted chin is so slender that the bearded man in work boots and a white t-shirt can cup it in one hand. The ear, velvet lily, pivots to hear what is happening to the body back there, outside of the frame, where the metal doors screech and the ramp of the transport truck crashes open. Leather gloves flare from the man's pockets as if they, too, are listening for what happens next. He's bent at the waist, the small of his back taking the weight of the great head, tongue, bone, brain, skin. Siding down the sloped neck, he doesn't see between his arms the giraffe looking up at his heart, doesn't meet the thick fringed eye gazing at him, the way the untried Gorgithian, Priam's blameless son, might in the midst of battle have gazed back at the ramparts before the arrows sent for Hector found him instead, and his perfect head drooped like a dew-heavy poppy on its slim stem, a look like a coverless book, spine cracked so it opens here, to this sweet face, this tilted throat, these buckled knees pressing the ground, this ground becomes sky in the black eyes that know neither resignation nor hope. Thank you, Erin. That was Erin Redfern reading Photograph of a Drugged Giraffe on the Hive Poetry Collective. Well, it's pretty amazing when you can go from Troy and the tragedy in Troy in our ancient epic (laughs) um, to a scene with a drugged giraffe. That's pretty muscular, as Carl Phillips would say. It's a a muscular poem when you can jump from time and space. Yeah. Like you know, that. Emerson used to want us to have manly poems, and sometimes I think maybe we would drop the manly, but now we say muscular. Oh, yeah. So what would, what would we... <laughs> I don't know. What, 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 what would the female version... Well, there's it's pretty... I'm pretty, <laughs> pretty muscular. muscular woman. Yeah. I'm muscular. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Um, Speaking of muscular, I just want to tell our readers yeah. that we're recording this on a farm in the SoCal Valley. So if you hear a fire crackling... That's the wood stove. We're just like Laura Ingalls Wilder here (laughs) at the Hive Poetry Collective today. Um, We also have a dog here, and uh, the dog might want to contribute at some point. It was Asta, not Dion, sighing heavily in the in the poem during the poem. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So, um, wow. Um, Now I'm trying to remember my Iliad. And trying to remember which of son, Priam's son got hit by an arrow that was meant for Hector. And I was thinking it was Paris, but then I thought, well, he's not blameless. So it couldn't have been Paris. So I don't, this is what I think. I haven't reread it in a while. I think Priam's his youngest son and the most untried. And he looks back to kind of see his... I could be making this up. I think he looks back to see his mother or his sister or somebody inside the city. And mm-hmm. at that moment of looking back, he is he's unwary, right? And he's shot and killed. Brought down. It, sound, it reminds me a little bit of the woman leaving Sodom or Gomorrah and she can't look back at the Oh, of Lot's city. wife? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. She can't look back at yeah. the city or she turns into salt. Right. That that's a dangerous, sometimes that's dangerous. Looking back. Yeah, mm. I, I often thought sort of like looking back with nostalgia at bad relationships. Right. Or just just looking back. It's, right, taking yeah. your attention away from where it needs to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. What does Gorgithian mean? Oh, I don't know in terms of like how the Greek name would translate into English. I'm not sure. Oh, the untried Gorgithian. That's his name. Yeah, that's, that's the his name, name of the son. Yeah. Oh, so yeah, it's capitalized. Next time you want a unique baby name, you know, yeah, Gorgi. 
Yeah. Oh my God. I love that. But you know, the kid will probably want, you have some really great sounds in this. The strong stalk of its neck has gone slack on the packed sand, slack, packed sand, neck, stalk, and lovely dun colored. That's just such a good, um, descript, good color name, dun. Yeah. It's, it's such an ugly little word, but I love it. I have to take it out a lot. I use it all the time. This is a National Geographic photograph. Oh, sounds yeah, kind of sounds like mm-hmm. it. What yeah. were they doing to this poor creature? I don't know. I only had the photograph, not the article. And it's just, and you just get kind of from right above the shoulder to the rest of the, and the, the giraffe's been, you know, clearly drugged and is um, woozy and is laying down sideways and the guy's holding up its head. That always used to disturb me when I would watch these nature shows. It'd be like, okay, here they go again, drugging the animal and putting some electronic tracking thing on it. It's like, oh God. And then at the end, they always say, and these animals are dying out. You know, we shoot them with drugs and put electronic things on them and they're dying out. Isn't that sad? I'm like, I don't think I want to watch these. Yeah, it was really, it was a hard... It was an uncomfortable photo to look at, and it's kind of like the signs. Maybe it's not always for me. I made it sound like I'm irritated by everything, but um, it's just that that unsettled, something's really wrong here, and I yeah. felt that about this this photo. There's some real contrast there. For example, the bearded man in work boots and a white T-shirt can cup it in one hand. It's so, it almost seems loving, and the description, the lifted chin is so slender the ear velvet lily pivots so there's these almost loving soft images and then it goes to the metal door screech and the ramp of the transport truck crashes open yeah inside the frame of the photograph it was very tender and but but my mind is asking what now? What's outside the frame? Yeah. Then what's going to happen to it? What you know? now? Yeah, it reminds yeah. me of that really famous painting. I think it's Rousseau, and there's a man lying down and a lion looking at him. Oh. You know that famous one? <laughs> no, I always I look don't. at it and go, now what? I'll go look at it. Now what happens? Right. And, and this, uh, and speaking of sounds, this list here, tongue, bone, brain, skin, it's such a great litany and they all have like a na 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 sound in it and and this um description a look like a coverless book you know that's the kind of thing where i write it where i go i mean it's just so out there in a way like you go is this gonna work and you have to sit with it for a while and go yeah it does work it almost it's i think it works because it's a blank thing but it's also skinned like yeah. Yeah, it's the undefend the vulnerability of it. Right. right. No covering. Um, and that um Priam's blameless son um might in the midst of battle have gazed back at the ramparts before the arrow sent it for Hector, found him instead, and his perfect head dropped like a dew heavy poppy on its slim stem. Now that conjured a little bit for me some Yates. Well, <laughs> the first time I ever read this poem, like at a little open mic, um, peop- like someone came up and complimented me on the poppy image, but that's not mine. It's Homer's. So oh. Yeats was probably using it as well. A lot of people use this image of this very young, beautiful, um, n- kind of battle naive boy man, right? dying and just the the flower of his head being still perfect and the neck drooping the way those heavy, you know, red poppies do. So it's a compelling image and I'm definitely not the first one to steal it. Well, actually I was thinking of the swan coming down and ravishing Leda and then he drops her. Mm -hmm. He he just drops her and then from her loins spring Mm -hmm. Helen, which engenders the entire... Mm -hmm. Um, story of Troy and just this idea that a god in a moment of lust could come down and ravage this unsuspecting woman and she like she has no idea what happens but the passing fancy of a god can Mm -hmm. create this huge consequence 
which is kind of what mm, humans do yeah. in nature. So I, yeah. I, I went, my mind really went oh, yeah. somewhere with that. Yeah, in nature and with each other. Right. Yeah. Right. So wonderful. That was uh, Aaron Redfern's poem, Photograph of a Drug Giraffe. That name, Redfern, (laughs) is such a poetic name. It's English. It's a common English name. Yeah, it's a place name. Oh. Yeah. Oh, so your family's English? I I know almost nothing about my family, but I know that there's a little place called Redfern in England. And a lot of times, um, for some reason, Redferns tend to be murderers. In like British murder mysteries, there's a lot of Redfern killers. Cool in the books, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Great. Okay, this is the Hive Poetry Collective on KSQD Santa Cruz ninety point seven FM. So, Erin, you have a PhD in literature uh, from Northwestern. Did you study from anyone really interesting there? What was that like? Oh, so when I went to grad school. I was very young. I went straight out of undergrad. I didn't really understand that graduate school was a career choice. I thought, I don't know what to do, so I'll just try to stay in school a little bit longer. So um, I got into the program. The first kind of meet and greet, we were supposed to go around and say what our area of, of study was, like what our specialty was. And I had never even given this a thought in my life. And I just blurted out, you know, American literature, because that's what I was most, I read that all the time, right? So I became an Americanist <laughs> after the first day. And um, uh, I was lucky enough to work with some great scholars, um, Jay Grossman, Betsy Urkla, Julia Stern. So, um, but I wasn't, I was kind of sneaking off reading some poetry, but I wasn't studying poetry. I um, I remember I was... I actually taught poetry as literature, and I remember having a, a one of the visiting creative writers come in, but it was really weird. There was a real segregation. The literature faculty and the creative writing faculty did not mix when I was there. I don't know what they do now. Um, so I managed to get through you know, seven years at this place with almost no awareness of the creative writing faculty or department or students, or that that was something people did. I I had already kind of assumed um, I wasn't able to write like that and had set it aside as an option for myself. And I was very focused on academia and scholarship. Um, And so, but yeah, mostly I was just really young and not aware of a lot of things, (laughs) but um, really developing my critical thinking in critical reading skills. Um, but that little, that part of me that now writes poetry was um, starving, I'd say, that whole time. Yeah, I see that divide a lot too. Um, I experienced it in my undergrad mm. at UCSC. I remember my last year, I took a class on the short story, and the final project was to write your own short story. And it was amazing. I just was so into that class, um, but still it didn't occur to me that the two fields could be merged. Really? And in high school, um, creative writing really gets short shrift. Yeah. It's really all about um, learning the essay, how to write the essay, the five-paragraph essay and the research paper, and um, even literature is beginning to kind of be shoved to the side, but there is some study of literature. And it always, I always thought you can teach literature through creative writing. Right. I totally, yeah. So were you like me? Were you sneaking in creative writing assignments when you could? It was hard because, um, you know, we, we had goals and objectives and there were tests to see if you met them. Um, but I did as much as I could. Yeah. I'd have in-class things like fun days when kids would write some form or the other. Right. And they come alive. And they do learn. Oh, yeah. Yeah. They really do. They really do love it. Huh. So that's interesting. But did you enjoy your PhD? Are you glad you did it? Um, it's so hard to answer. I'm grateful for the skills I developed. But no, I didn't enjoy it. It was, it was a pretty awful time. <laughs> I, can't, I can't really sugarcoat it. Yeah. I mean, I got out by the skin of my teeth. I almost, you know, I was... Um, 
I feel like I escaped instead mm-hmm. of graduated. Uh-huh. Yeah. It's funny how school can be like that. Well, what made it so hard? Just the difficulty of the kinds of papers you had to write or the pressure that was I on you? I think that. And maybe also not just, I mean, it was a, the, the people I was working with are good people and it was a good program. And my um, peer group, my cohort were fabulous. So I can't point the finger and say that something did anything to me or to make my experience that way. But I think it might might be more the a square peg in a round hole kind mm-hmm. of thing where... Mm-hmm. Right. I'm, I love people. I love teaching. I like psychology. I like poetry. I like mm-hmm. all these emotional processes I'm fascinated by. And there wasn't room for that there. So I felt Just like too in analytical and intellectual, it was very cerebral, right? Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's a place full, you know, like brains with legs walking around the departments. Right. And they're mm-hmm. brilliant and they're fascinating and they're, they're great people. But I, this other part of me that I think now is the where my talent is and where I feel most alive had, had to just get completely shunted to the side. I felt a little bit that way when I got out of my undergraduate. Mm-hmm. I just, I, I just did not want to analyze anymore. I want to live. Oh, uh, I, I can remember that uh, really clearly. Yeah. I guess I'm not really cut out for that super cerebral intellectual yeah. thing. I like to write. I like to yeah. create. That's really wise. I wish I'd realized something like that. I might not have gone to grad school <laughs> if I, I need to live. Yeah. A little space <laughs> yeah. in between undergraduate and graduate yeah. is good, but I, it's not like I really figured out uh, that I, I want to be a creative person in that time. How did you know that? When did you figure that out? Oh, wow. Now you're interviewing me. Um, well, when I got out of my undergraduate, I just did kind of menial jobs and I spent a lot of time journal writing and painting and doing crazy performance art in Seattle <laughs> where I would where I would read my poetry and do movement to it while my then boyfriend this kind of musician punk would do like weird electronic music <laughs> behind me. That's awesome. <laughs> Sometimes I would remove my clothes and it was a really cool scene in Seattle in the seventies and eighties. Yeah. And, but I wasn't that disciplined and I was working as a barista and a mm. theater manager and stuff. So, um, I ended up getting a teaching credential thinking that was a better fit, but actually I was kind of on a good path. It's too bad. I just didn't get a good writing teacher. Although my teacher at Western Washington university, Ken Symes, he said to me, I really hate to see you thrown in front of a bunch of high school kids. Mm. Stay here, get your master's and write. Wow. I can get you a job. And um, I didn't listen. And I just hope that he knows (laughs) that he was right. I just just wish that I could tell him that he was right. He was like one of the first person who told me I could write. And the second person was Ellen Bass. But enough about me. (laughs) Why don't we read um, your next wonderful poem? I love this one about Madame Bovary. Uh, I was afraid to write this poem because... um, I don't even know if I had a very good translation of, and like, how can you, it felt so provincial and American to be like, rah, 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 Flaubert, you know? Uh, those so, French. Those French. <laughs> uh, it's, it's satire, Aaron. You know, so I was afraid to write it to seem kind of um, dumb and provincial, but then um, I just, it really wanted to come out for a couple of years, actually. So it's called On Rereading Madame Bovary at 40. Finally, we got to read a book with a woman's name, your name. One of the greats, our teacher said. At 15, I could not scorn your far-flung dark horse longings. I saw in you a girl like me, seeking something big as love. I didn't know you were Gustave's femme mache, surrogate for bourgeois greed, excuse for risque docudrama, trumped-up thing, riffling open for anyone's leisure. And did he put some body English on you? Your dainty feet, your frothy knickers, your India ink eyes, wordless telegraphs vaulting everyone's crumbling moral breastwork. He made you, mistress, delectable, then grilled you over an open flame of quick trysts and heartbreak. I blame your tale on the teller, savant of armchair critiques 
and Near East brothels, master of malcontent, who fashioned your tawdry cravings, then upped the dose to lethal. He even pulled back the sheets so we could see you at your death, puddling like desire's afterbirth. I will never fault you for gobbling arsenic just to get out of that book. That was Aaron Redfern read, reading on rereading <clears throat> Madame Bovary at 40. And we're listening to poetry and talking about poetry here on the ranch at Love Creek Ranch in SoCal. I'm Deanna Riley with Aaron Redfern. And, um, you know, I, I really get, got tired of all these women committing suicide in literature. Yeah. And in movies, gets old. too. It gets old. <laughs> yeah. Like, oh, my gosh, we have, we have all this uh, despair and, and uh, now we have to kill ourselves. Yeah, The Awakening was the classic one, right. like Kate Chopin, right? Right. Yeah, yeah, it was the right. classic one, like The Doll's House, too, I right. think. Yeah, there's just yeah. a ton of them. There's a ton of them, um, yeah. But I, like you, when I read Madame Bovary uh, in high school, I'm like, right. I was sort of tintillated. I'm like, oh my gosh, finally, a poem about a woman with passion. Right. So in that way, it was some, at least something, a small opening, yeah. yeah, and she has such longing. She has. She doesn't know, right? Her her life isn't structured in a way that she can find out what's that that's about, right? She has to kind of fall into these love affairs because mm-hmm. there's no other way to answer this longing for something else. I actually feel that way about the awakening. Like um, Edna just wants something else. You look around at life sometimes. I mean, I do this, right? We look around and we're like, "This is it." This is what it's all about. It's like a PhD program. <laughs> There's got to be more. <laughs> but you know, Danusha Lamaris, um, I think in the same New Ohio Review that your poems just came out in, right, has a great article about um, film biographies of women poets and why do they always have to be hamstrung, right? Why do they? Why do we have to weaken them with? I mean the suicide, the death? Why do we have to show them that there's something wrong or monstrous about the creative woman poet on screen? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that was a great article, I thought. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that one was good. And it's just true. That is just a really tired trope. You know, I recently read in Malcolm Gladwell's new book um, that Sylvia Plath, well, yeah, okay, she did commit suicide, but a ton of people committed suicide at that particular time in London because of the kind of gas that they were using to light their homes. Huh. I've never heard that. And it's just like the the epidemic of suicide we have now because we have so many guns that if people right. have a way to commit suicide mm-hmm. that's yeah. really available, then they'll do it. And it's not that idea that they're going to find some other way if it's not a gun. It's just not true hmm. because it's very um, circumstantial. Hmm. So, I mean, she, and she is the, just the epitome of the troubled poet who commits suicide. But who knows? Maybe if there weren't that gas, <laughs> she wouldn't. It's tempting have done to think, it. yeah. So, okay. Um, what is a femme mache? Uh, I'm not. I kind of made that up because when I was in grade school, you know, we sometimes made things with paper mache. Uh-huh. So I thought, oh, that's probably means something like, I don't speak French. It's probably something like making things with paper. So I'm saying he's making a woman. Oh, a paper woman. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> like, but if somebody speaks ah. French, they can, they can um, write into your show and correct that. Okay. So could someone please leave a comment on our <laughs> Facebook page at the Hive Poetry Collective for KSQD or go to our website, hivepoetry.org and tell us if that makes any mistake, any, um, any sense at all. Yeah. Um, it sounds good. I liked how it sounded. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so this is something I didn't know about him. So he hung out in Near East brothels. Yeah. I don't know like the ins and outs of his entire biography. Mm -hmm. Yes. But he would, he would travel. I think, I mean, this had to be a kind of a European, especially a white male European thing, right. To go to a quote unquote exotic place Mm -hmm. and do things you wouldn't do at home. Like Tunisia. Yeah. Yeah. Like Matisse and. Yeah. yeah, those guys. Well, so it was real projection then. It was almost like a project, projecting on <laughs> I think her. I'm implying that, yeah. 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 Um, he made you mistress, delectable, then grilled you over an open flame of quick tris and heartbreak. That's almost like burning a witch. 
Yeah. At the stake. That's yikes. Yeah. I wrote yikes next to that. Yeah. Because that's so powerful. Yeah, I just, even, I remember, even as a, as this is really baffled, right, sophomore in high school, just thinking, why is he doing this to her? Why is this author doing this to this character? It's, um, I didn't know the word sadistic, but I would have said it's so sadistic. And, and of course, when you read Flaubert in high school, you're learning about his obsession with the perfect sentence and, right, all the stuff about form, but nobody's saying, why is this happening to this woman character? I don't think I read one book by a woman in high school. I had one um, teacher who I think she could get away with it because it was an adolescent in literature class who taught a Carson McCullers novel. Oh, like The Heart is Lonely Hunter. She taught The Heart is a Lonely Hunter. That's wonderful. But I think that's it. Huh. Yeah. Yeah, we didn't read much in high school. I was reading stuff on my own. Um, okay, so that was Erin Redfern's On Rereading Madame Bovary at 40. Makes me want to reread it here at the Hive Poetry Collective on KSQD, Santa Cruz 90.7 FM. Why don't we read now <laughs> one of your influences? But first, why don't we oh. talk about who are your influences and who are you oh, reading gosh. right now? Well, what are you reading <laughs> yeah. right now? What are you really um, into? Do you have any influences? So I, the only poetry class I ever got to take um, in school was a semester of poetry in, when I was a high school senior, I think. Um, it was taught by an ex-nun, and we covered um, a lot of the European poetry. So that's the first time I remember being aware of language and entranced by language. And so... Um, and so my my early influences are kind of adolescent. Like Dylan Thomas's Fern Hill mm. just blew me away. Mm-hmm. Um, I loved Rutke mm-hmm. um, because of that class. Um, He's passionate. Yeah, I, I and I'm trying to think who else. Um, I really loved those two. Um, I think I was pretty intrigued by E. E. Cummings mm. and William Carlos Williams. The freedom there. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. So I could just hear things. But in terms of like language influences, sometimes I think, because I don't come from a a family of readers. My parents aren't literary. There were no poetry books in the house. Um, I think, I think um, one of them, one of my parents either bought me Robert Frost's collected works um, for a birthday, but I think it might have been like on sale at Costco or something. It was like a, a mass <laughs> kind of market mm-hmm. reissue of Frost or something like there that. There was a time, I think, when there was a Frost book in every American house, yeah. practically. But that was mine. Like, my parents wouldn't have read it. So, um, so honestly, it's like Julie Andrews musicals, right? Oh. And the lyrics in there. Oh. And... Um, Raindrops on roses yeah, and whiskers right? on <laughs> Right, and jingles, and just this really, like, middle American... I mean, for me, it was important to hear what people could do mm. with with sounds. And even... Um, this is fairly esoteric, but I was I played basketball growing up, and um, I was, I think, in junior high when the movie Hoosiers came out. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and that soundtrack really kind of made my mind come alive because it mimics... The music, the form of the music and the sound of it mimics what's happening on the court, right? So there'll be like heavy drums when they're on offense and no drums were on the, when they're on defense because you don't hear the ball dribbling, being dribbled anymore. And so that kind of, so I was picking up things like that, like, oh, you can match form and structure and make it really, really cool. Mm-hmm. You know, so I was picking these little pieces from here and there, but I never have like studied a poet. Hmm. Hmm. Well, it's kind of an awakening when you realize that life has a rhythm. Yeah. 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 And like there's our heart is always beating. Mm -hmm. And like even when we're sitting here now, the fire is going and there's a certain kind of a a rhythm to the sound of that. So, yeah, those movies really, Miami Vice was really good at that. Just putting a song to the action. Yeah. So there is this background rhythm it's kind of like the magic of when you study um, linguistics or 
diagramming sentences and you realize mm-hmm. that there's or just grammar that there's a structure to the yeah. words coming out of our mouths are like crystals. Right. Kind because of then you can be intentional with it. Mm-hmm. And it gives you this agency. It's like, I mean, it's it's like a toddler learning, oh, if I move this, something happens, right? I have agency in the world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, making yeah. something of nothing, finding, well, it seems like nothing, but there's a lot of embedded form right. there. So what are you reading these days then? So I love poetry by, um, let's see, I have Mark Doty is on my top shelf. Um, Jacqueline Oshro, who I think she teaches in Utah. She's a, um, a great poet. Um, I'm always surprised that not more people know about her, but her book, um, Dead Men's Praise, I, I'm just in love with right now. You know I've started reading David Kirby, who writes these um, long, almost like comedy shtick poems um, I'm, and also I read, um, Denise Dehuma. I really like poets that have some humor. Tony Hoagland. I like this, this poets who can get at some really tender spot, emotional spot with a poem, but with a light touch with, to do it without the, um, like operatic melodrama taking themselves so seriously. I like the move of, um, I know, um, Here's my agony. I know it's just like your kind of run-of-the-mill Tuesday afternoon human agony, but it's hurting me. Like, I kind of like that approach in the poems. I like to read poems that make me feel less alone. I think if you can ever have humor in poetry, that's a good thing. Any humor is good. Anything that makes you laugh if it's not at someone else's expense um, is good. And there's a really compassionate kind of laughter, like, oh, look at us, look at look at us humans look at the things we do well it's usually funny because it's true yeah we're just nuts <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's just being human yeah um so are we gonna read one of your uh poem by one of your influences do you want to oh, i didn't you said to bring kind of something oh you got some duhamel denise, du- is that how you, denise duhamel yeah. is that how you oh you have some I gaspar think I read gaspar for, oh if it's God. in terms of being an influence i wish he influenced me i just read it and I, you know some things i read and it makes me want to write and some things like gaspar i read and i want to stop writing forever and just read what he writes. will never be that. Yeah. But he has these kind of longer poems. So um, I'm just looking for one that's maybe... Yeah, I think I'll read this early one. It's from A Field Guide to the Heavens. It's quite early. It's called Now the Moon is in the First Quarter. Okay. Now the moon is in the first quarter. It hangs above my house, crisp and bruised. Now the moonlight is significant, pulling me outside to live with the insects and the small animals. Behind some loose bricks near the garden wall, a cricket is making noises with her tempered legs. Everywhere, the smell of night-blooming jasmine drifts and sleeps. The siren off in the boulevard is calling out one of the names of God, and across the street, my neighbor sits on his front steps, smoking. He's been fighting with his wife for weeks. He doesn't see me yet. When he flips his cigarette into the street, The orange coal bursts into a little galaxy of sparks. His silence holds the stars in silence. All around us, there are so many hungers. I know the places in the park where people lie hidden next to their bags of worldly possessions. I know the places where one must never walk. I have to set the record straight. I have to get one or two things exactly right, even though I know that I'm only blood and dirt. Now I can sit on the cool concrete of my own steps and smile and nod at the creation, although I understand next to nothing. Sometimes, on nights just like this one, my street becomes a glistening river, and you can go down to it and put your hands into it, and the waters of your life will wash over your disasters. Then the stars will work hard for you. Then the small bats will tattoo a celebration around the streetlights. Then you can rest without sorrow behind my juniper hedge. Then you can tell me what it is that I must do. Wow. Right? (laughs) That was Aaron Redford reading some Frank X. Gaspar from his A Field Guide to the Heavens. Jeez, there's not one bad line. There's not one line in that poem that isn't just 
exquisite. Right. And what a path he leads you on, what turns he takes. And it starts with description. And then that turn all around us, the world is full of hunger. Yeah. And he goes to home people that don't have homes. Um, and then he says, I just want to get one thing right. 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 Oh, we know that feeling. Gosh. And this line, um, my street becomes a glistening river and you can go down to it and put your hands into it and the waters of your life will wash over your disasters. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he's one of the great me. existential poets. Yeah, he's so widely read. And it, that allows him to make some incredible turns. Like in this poem, it was just all around us. There are so many hungers, an incredible thing to say. But a lot of times it's like, oh, I've been reading the confessions. I've been reading right this or that. And it takes right. us on a journey. Yeah, he, he um, I knew, he taught in my MFA program oh. um, at Pacific University, mm-hmm. but he taught in fiction, I mm-hmm. think. Um, but one of my poet friends, Julia Levine, took him. And um, he really likes his students to read the greats, you know, yeah. like Virgil and Milton. Right. And um, he's the one I actually quote him in a poem. He, he believes you should start your day writing lines of iambic pentameter, even oh. if it's just Detroit, 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 <laughs> Detroit, Detroit. Was that five Detroits? <laughs> yes, it was. Yes, it was. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, he really, um, he really derives his ideas from the yeah the greats, the luminaries. Yeah, it gives him some kind of bedrock that he's he's really like, comfortable moving out of, moving from there. I just yeah. love the way he takes you to all these mm-hmm. different places. And that river almost seems like Buddhist or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's always, though, to a place, it comes to a place where it's like, oh, man, look at us here, right? Aren't we sweet? Aren't we tender? Aren't we failed? Mm-hmm. You know, aren't we not living up to our potential? Don't you, you know, don't you love us too? It's, it's. And isn't that a rapture? Yeah. 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 Um, yeah, here, you know, I just, um finished Joseph Stroud's new book, um, Everything That Rises, and I'm raving about it to everyone, but he's on that level. Oh, you know, he has I'm these great him. existential um, poems that go all over the place in time and space. Yeah. Very musculature. <laughs> Muscular. Yeah. <laughs> like us. Yeah. Um, well, we only have a few minutes left. Okay. Poems like that, I got to say, though, they're just, they're kind of like standing near a redwood, right? They're, yes. They make you feel better because you realize how small you are. Yes. Yeah. And how big everything else is. I love those kind of poems. Well, I've decided when I feel that jealousy for a poem, it usually means it really is influencing me. Then Frank Gaspar is influencing me. Yeah. yeah. For sure. Yeah. And you go in and really um, examine it. Okay. So really quick, tell me about your current projects, what you're doing these days, what you're working <laughs> on. I'm um, like from the outside, maybe not doing, doesn't look like much. So I, um, when I started writing poetry, this is like 2015, and I met a writer, a San Francisco writer named Joan Gelfand. And she's a poet and a novelist. And she, um, if you're trying to get a book published or start getting your work out there, she's the person to contact. I contacted her and she... Um, she used to be in sales and she has this like numerical statistical approach like, okay, here's the acceptance rate. It's 2%. So if you want to get X number of poems published in a year, this is how many, you know, um, submissions you have to make. This is how many you need to make a month. Right. And, and she just kind of got me going and I was in this, get my workout, get my workout for, um, I'd say 2015 and part of 2016. And then, um, one day she said, well, you know, Aaron, you can't wait too long to get a book out. And I just froze. It freaked me out. Um, I don't, I didn't think my work was where I wanted it to be yet. So I stopped submitting completely and I just wanted to work on my craft and it drives me nuts. Cause that's a, such a slow process for me. I get better. So like by the tiniest increments, but, um, that's what I'm doing right now. I'm trying to get better. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we only have a couple of minutes left. Okay. So I can't ask you what better is. Uh, um, <laughs> what better means to you. Um, but um, yeah, submitting is really hard and really time consuming, but it is part of the process. And Yeah, I'll be getting back to it. But yeah, it's, I've been taking a break. Okay. Yeah. 
Oh, well, it's been so fabulous talking to you. I feel like we could go on forever. Yeah. Um, <laughs> this is Dion O'Reilly. I've been here with Aaron Redford here at the Hive Poetry Collective on KSQD Santa Cruz 90.7 FM. Thank you for tuning in and tune in next week too and subscribe to our podcast. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much, Dion. Does it go?